Support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluent and Velocity Conferences coming to San Jose, California, June 11 through 14. Join us for more insights, experts, and peers than ever before. You will get hands-on training to help you improve performance, resilience, and user experience. Register with code GTC20. That's GTC for Greater Than Code 2020 to save up to $519 on your pass. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. No underscores or spaces or apostrophe. Good morning. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode number 80. I am Jessica Kerr, and I am happy to be here today with my fellow panelist, John Sowers. Thanks, Jessica. I'm here to introduce our guest, Chris Howard. Chris is the Developer Relations and Director at YaoConf. Previously, she was at Canva. She's a TEDx speaker, a geek, knitter, social media addict, and all-around Hermione. Welcome to the show, Chris. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, morning my time. I'm so happy to be here. Where are you, Chris? I am sitting in a hotel room in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I am at a conference uh, speaking in about 12 hours from now. Oh, yeah. You're doing the closing keynote. What do you call that in Australia? Uh, I've heard the term lock note a few times, um, but I, don't, I haven't heard it used in the U.S. much. Lock note sounds like a knitting stitch. That's a very, yeah, that's a good one, actually. I'll have to invent a lock note. <laughs> <laughs> and that ties in with the topic of your keynote, lock note. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the talk I'm doing is actually relates really well to the topic we were going to talk about. It's called Knit One, Compute One. It actually came out of a TED Talk that I did a few years back about sort of connections that I was seeing between knitting and coding. So it's pretty fun. I've had a whole suitcase full of knitting that I've brought with me that I'm going to pull out on stage this afternoon. Did you check that luggage? I did, actually. I know. I probably shouldn't have. Um, yeah, precious cargo. But you never know. They can get mad about knitting needles. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, actually, um, you can you can knit on domestic Australian flights now. Ah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I didn't do it the last time I was in the U.S. I think they're still wary. So knitting is dangerous and threatening. <laughs> and does the audience get to play with your knitting, or are you just showing it off? Well, there'll be drinks and networking after my talk, so I imagine that uh, there'll be a fair number of people playing with it, I think. <laughs> a few of it has, you know, blinking lights, which is always fun. Oh, that's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, and the QR code. I imagine people will want to uh, verify that the knitted QR code does actually resolve. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that was um, that was a really difficult prototyping exercise to get that one to work properly. <laughs> yeah, it would be, but uh, QR scanners have gotten better over the last several years, I think, because I have a QR code tattoo and for a while it didn't scan, but now it does again. Wow. And so I think the scanning technology has actually like surpassed the stretchiness of my skin, which is fabulous. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the problem I had is that, you know, they really rely on everything being square, but knitted stitches are inherently rectangular. They're slightly wider than they are tall. So my pixels were rectangles. So it was actually quite, um, I had to do a number of number of prototypes to get it to where it would work. And, and in the end, I figured out finally that just stretching the heck out of it would actually allow it to scan. <laughs> nice. So what does knitting have to do with computing? Well, uh, the first thing you learn as a knitter when you're starting out, the first thing I learned, because I didn't knit as a child, I only learned uh, as a grown-up once I was already a coder, is that knitting binary, there are actually only two stitches, knit and purl. And once you sort of realize that you just combine these in different ways, anyone who, who, who works with, you know, computers is going to recognize that I can start using this to encode data. You start looking at knitting patterns and realize this, this feels like a coding, like a programming language. You know, it has for loops and subroutines and you just start seeing all of these connections. And I'm not by any means the first person to observe this. There have been uh, other talks at tech conferences over the year. I think the Venn diagram of knitters and programmers actually has a pretty big overlap in the middle. That's definitely been my experience. And then you get to start adding hardware. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Knitters love gadgets. I mean, Ravelry um, is a social networking site for knitters that launched about over 10 years ago, I think. And it's one that I think tech people don't necessarily know about. There's nearly 8 million knitters on this niche social site. And we, we share tools, you know, we, we, it's a fantastic target for advertisers because we're an audience who want to know about new products and new materials. And it, yeah, I think it's a really great case study of what a very effective niche social network could be. Um, and not a lot of people know about it. 
I've heard that that site has some really useful features, especially for developers. Yeah, there's an API, uh, and I haven't played. I, I played a little bit with it um, back in the day of pulling in my projects and putting them onto my blog, so it could show you know my progress bars for where I am and stuff like that. Um, I know a lot of people have been building apps. If you you go on Android or iOS App Store, there are a number of apps where people have allowed you to carry your various knitting projects, your wish list of patterns you want to knit because, you know, you'll be out at a craft store like you go somewhere for work like I am, go into the knitting shop on my lunch break and realize that, oh, right, I wanted to make something. So what was the thing that I wanted or um, what are the materials I have at home that I could use for it? Uh, yeah, lots of lots of cool tech in the knitting world. That sounds fantastic. It's it's so great that there's the support for that community. Yeah, the Revelry site um, was was built by a, a husband and wife team who are techies, you know, programmers, and it w- went so well that that basically they were able to quit their jobs and just work on it full time. So uh, it's a great case of like scratch your own itch, and the rest of the community will follow you. So here's a question: as a social networking site, and you said you were into social networking as well as knitting. How does Ravelry do is at like being welcoming. That is a very interesting one. And it's actually one of the very last points I'm making in the, in the talk this afternoon is a lock note is sort of lessons that maybe tech could learn from the knitting world, because I think Ravelry does a really good job. Uh, and obviously right now, a lot of us have been reading sort of what's happening with Stack Overflow and various sites that have been recognized as maybe not being the most welcoming place to new people. And I think Ravelry does a really great job of onboarding new people into the community and helping them sort of understand, you know, the social mores and the expectations. The biggest feature there, they've got what they call groups and forums. And so you can find, it's like that rule about, you know, porn on the internet, like any fandom you could find, there is a group on Ravelry for knitters who are into that thing. Um, you know, Harry Potter knitters or, or Tour de France knitters or pretty much anything. I think they do a very good job of, of welcoming new people. I started the Australian Knitters Group uh, right after Ravelry launched. And we've got a team of mods and admins. We make use. They've got really good tools for sort of getting rid of spam and keeping uh, keeping discussions uh, on topic, reporting things, flagging things. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a, it's a more welcoming one than some of the tech communities that I've seen. When you say we have a team of mods, do you mean Ravelry or the Australian group? The Australian group, the Australian group. I've got a team of, I think, four or five of us who, who keep an eye on it. And it's funny because you know, every group has their own rules. <laughs> One of the biggest features on the Australian group is we have the D-stash thread, which is basically everyone accumulates far more knitting wool than they will ever use in their lifetime. And so when you finally need to clear out some of it so that you can buy more, um, you can list it on this thread and say, here's what I've got. I'm willing to post it. And people are just obsessed with this thread. And so uh, we've got all these rules that have developed over the years of, you know, don't put, make meaningless posts just to say thanks. You know, we all we want to see is pictures of yarn and, and everything has to have a price. And no, we're not interested in clothes or other things that you have. It's only got to be yarn. So we've, we've sort of codified some rules around it. And the tools that they've given us uh, really allow us to manage that. It's federated then. You said each group has its own rules. And then within your groups, there's context. Absolutely. We, we sort of have a small wiki for each group as well. Um, they really give you a lot of power. And the groups that exist are hilarious. There are a couple main boards that everyone gets added to. And I mean, those are like the front page of Reddit. You know, it's sort of like enter at your own risk kind of thing. But the subgroups that the, the different communities form are really, I think, where the really good discussion happens. So the communities are then able to sort of structure themselves in such a way that they can enforce their own mores and, and make a tighter community than would be found on a larger site. Oh yeah. And they develop their own lingo and vocabulary and, you know, shorthand. And there's a whole group just dedicated to tracking down, you know, message board drama in other groups. <laughs> and then they just, they just watch and, and they don't like uh, interfere. You know, it's like they're soap <laughs> opera. Um, yeah. Crazy stuff. That's hilarious. And you remarked that the tools that Ravelry gives you enable that really good moderation and that clear communication of expectations. Yeah, very much so. I mean, look, it's a it's a tech website. There's always going to be some level of needing to get up to speed with the tools. And so, one of the things I've done actually, um, I'm a member of the Knitters Guild of New South Wales here here in Australia, in Sydney, and I have actually gone to several of the local knitting guild groups and given a talk on "Welcome to the Knitternet." 
and on an introduction to Ravelry for many of the members of the group um, who might be a bit older, who've been given an iPad for Christmas and have seen all their friends using this and want to know how they can use it. So I've actually taught training courses to people using this site on you know, here's here's how you fill out a form and sign up for an account and stuff like that. But I think a lot of us just take for granted that they've got a cater for such a wide uh, wide range of abilities. Yeah, that's great to have uh, sort of the easy intro into into the community and to sort of help establish what the the norms of interaction are. Uh, that's got to be incredibly helpful to someone who's not familiar. Yeah, absolutely, and. I mean, I think, look, we're not, we're not perfect by any means. One of the things I talk about in my talk is that a few years back, there was a big fad for novelty yarn, you know, for sort of fluffy stuff that basically looks like you killed a Muppet and turned it into knitting yarn. And it was unlike anything else in the market. It kind of made a big splash. A bunch of new people came into the knitting community who were just using this. And the thing is, once you've made one scarf with it, you realize it's actually not very nice. It's acrylic. It's it, it doesn't actually feel the nicest to wear. And they're developed this sort of weird snobbery between the old guard looking down and then, you know, me looking in the tech community being like, okay, insert latest JavaScript framework of the week, you know, that, that the old guard <laughs> looks down on people who are getting into it. But I think that's kind of short-sighted. Like the fact of the matter is those people coming in actually save knitting. You know, knitting as a, as a craft, uh, at least in Australia, was really going downhill. And the fad that developed around that stuff just brought this whole new group of people into the community. And guess what? They've eventually moved on. They, they, they learn the traditional skills. They start um, becoming contributors. And so I think that's one, another one of the things that we can do better is realize that, yes, there are tools that people are going to get involved with that we might think aren't the best. But if it gets them involved, like, great. How do we then take them beyond that? That's such a great parallel. Um, I, mean, I've, I have a, a hoodie made with eyelash yarn, which I love. But yeah, I, I love the the comparison there. For like, there's nothing that doesn't line up as far as the tech snobbery and the knitting snobbery and the the community welcoming the new guard coming in who's just discovering it. The parallels are fascinating. You eyelash yarn, you know the lingo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> My, I have quite a few friends who are really into it. Yeah, that I see. I would have guessed. Yep. Welcoming new people is so important, and you mentioned a couple different ways that that happens. And one is that you don't have the expectation that everyone coming in has a particular set of skills. I read something the other day that said that if you want to increase participation in a community, you don't start at the center appealing even more to the people who are already there. You start at the edges. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was part of the discussion we had um, in, I don't remember, episode 76, perhaps, with Kenzie and Lori um, about healthcare and how talking about when you're designing a system that needs to be inclusive, if you get the edge cases correct, if you manage to get the people on the fringes taken care of, automatically it makes the whole system better. It makes the people in the middle well taken care of, as long as you're looking out for the edges. Yeah, often better taken care of. I think it's good to give people an easy on-ramp to this stuff. I think also, though, some of what's attractive that the tools they use, like the eyelash yarn, are actually really difficult to use. And so I just, I think they, we need to somehow some strike a balance in saying, uh, yeah, this is really cool and you can make stuff with it, but actually um, there are simpler things you can use. So if you get frustrated, it's, it's not knitting. It's, it's, you know, let me know and I can help you find something else that will actually be easier for you. Yeah, I find that that feedback is incredibly helpful when people are learning any new system. Like for a long time, I mentored uh, developers learning Rails. And like the thing I always said in, in almost every case, at least once and probably more than once to each of them was, no, this is supposed to be hard. It's OK. It's just going to be hard for a while or like this is going to be hard. But here's an easier way to do it for now. Um, and just pointing out those pathways, those like, A, it's either the path to, you know, this is going to be hard, but you'll get through it because it, it's not going to be this hard forever. Or the here's the quick way around it sort of as a way to build up your skills so you can come back to this thing and then be good enough or more familiar enough to, to actually finish that part. Yeah, I think with knitting, a lot of it also is sort of muscle memory. And I'm trying to think of what the analogy would be with coding, I guess. There's just sort of workflows that you eventually become second nature. And so with knitting, a lot of it is just the awkwardness of using these tools and maybe if not using your hands in those ways, you've done it a long time. And so there's a certain amount of, as you say, just 
you know, a certain number of hours that you got to power through before it starts to feel a little bit more natural. Ooh, and then the hard part is explaining to someone what your hands know. Yes. Oh gosh, yes. And every and and newbies always want to know what's the right way to do it. And the fact is there is no right way to do it. I hold my knitting wool, I'm a thrower. I hold my working wool in my right hand. Other people um are pickers and the continental style, they hold their working wool in their left hand. It's actually really difficult once you've learned to unlearn it and to use a different form. And one is not better than the other. You know, it's, it's whatever works for you. Well, at least we don't have that problem in programming. I know where the curly braces go and I know that it should be spaces instead of tabs. <laughs> I could, I can see a parallel there. You know, it's like, okay, Jess, I want to build an app or I want to write some code to solve a problem. What's the best way to do that? It's as if there is an objective measure, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I just, um, <laughs> I think in software, we often default to, I know the right way to do it, as opposed to lots of people do this differently in any way is correct. Oh, yeah. Well, the way I do it is the right way, of course. (laughs) It is kind of the only way you can teach. Yeah. Well, and knitting is a hard one as well, because, and I actually think the other, the other really good parallel to getting people onto tech is that the first step of casting on your loops is actually harder than the knitting part. And the knitting part is actually what you do for 99% of the project. But that initial setup, the sort of um, the heavy lifting part is hard. And I think a lot of people run smack into that wall and stop. So when I teach people, I often like, look, I'm I'm actually going to cast on for you. And we're going to get you going. And then we're going to go back and and you'll understand better why I did what I did, Um, which is sometimes a little bit of, you know, get trust involved there. I wonder if that's like glitch. Where you start with the working program and you get to change and experiment with it instead of starting from a blank file. Absolutely. A blank, a blank file is like the scariest thing in the world. I mean, I, I yeah. help out with Node, Gir- Node Girls in Sydney, which is, uh, we're doing that this weekend, which is a group that teaches women who've never coded before to code. And, you know, telling people to clone a Git repo who've never done that in their lives, that's actually not the easiest on ramp in the world. It's like, actually, let me get you going and then we will go and talk about this other stuff. Yeah, changing a working system is so much easier than starting from scratch. But yeah, I actually learned to to knit in second grade and, and casting on was by far the hardest. And I was the only left-handed person. No one could show me how to do it. It took me a really long time. Oh gosh, yes. Teaching a lefty would be... The, the trick I've heard is have them face you and mirror your movements, like you're sitting in front of a mirror. But I've never actually taught a lefty. That would be interesting. Yeah, it was definitely a challenge. But yeah, definitely that that whole getting an environment up and working like that's an advanced skill. So having that sort of pre-built environment where you can just start seeing what code does, seeing what stitches do, um, I think is, is is an amazing way to jump into the easy part. And then, like you said, come back to the difficult part after you've built up some skills. I mean, there's a reason why pretty much every coding bootcamp event starts with an install fest, you know, because... Wait, they start with a what? Oh, is that not a term you guys use? Uh, an install fest? Install fest. Ah. Install fest. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the local, like, Ruby group here does, you know, periodic install fest, where their meetup is literally just about getting new people set up to use it. Because if you're doing that on your own, it can be really hard. Yeah, for sure. That was always the challenge with new people coming into the boot camp I was working at was like, if it doesn't go perfectly when you're when you're just trying to install Ruby, like it stops you dead and you've and you have by that point no skills to get around it. And so having someone there to help out get you over that bump is always great. So you started to draw this parallel between coding and knitting, and it, it certainly seems to be pretty interesting. Is there anywhere this this is going that you find really interesting or is this an idea that you feel like you've explored thoroughly or is there a lot more to do in this area? One of the projects I talk about in the talk is an, um, an open source proposal that I found called KnitML. It's an XML format. It's a proposed uh, new knitting pattern format for pattern exchange and transformation. And so the idea was that a lot of coders, we look at the way knitting patterns are written and we think, oh, this could be so much more you know, standardized. And then that would allow a computer to do useful things like make decisions and do error checking and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff like that. And so I found this. I found it after it had already sort of like the momentum had dropped and the maintainers had dropped out. But I've 
since I've been doing this talk, I've had a few chats with other people in tech who've immediately gone, yes, let's port this to, you know, Python. Let's, let's revive this. Let's get it going. And so that's kind of my long-term goal here is, um, see if I can get MidML or, or something similar to it up and working because it's just got so many advantages and really cool things that I think on both the tech and the knitting side. Yeah, having that common format for information exchanges is, is one of the foundations of really spreading knowledge around. And there's a great example because I'm also, I, I sew as well, I sew clothes. And I found recently a fantastic platform. You should get this guy to talk, by the way, to future episode. Um, it's called freesewing.org. And it was made by a coder and a, and a tailor. Uh, and he, what he's written is he's written a platform where instead of, you know, you buy a, a sewing pattern and you download it and it's got all the sizes. Instead, you go on the website and you fork a pattern and you put in all the measurements that you need and it will generate a custom sewing pattern schematic to your exact sizes um, and specification, a bunch of different customizations. And you can then download a PDF of just that and print it and, and make your garment. I just think it's such a brilliant idea. It's a complete disruption to the way sewing patterns have been sold for literally hundreds of years. And it's just a growing community. It's actually one of the first, I, I messaged the guy on Twitter to say, oh, I, you know, there's a problem in, in some of your documentation for one of the patterns. You know, is there somewhere I can submit a fix? And he went, yeah, it's on GitHub. And so one of my first open source PRs was submitting some documentation to this guy's site because I think it's such a great thing. And that's really the kind of thing that I would love for to exist in the knitting world as well. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, the ability to diff and comment on and fork and mutate a knitting pattern just like you would do with a sewing pattern it leads to an explosion in innovation because now it's a million times easier to do these things. Absolutely. And Ravelry kind of is like, like there's a lot of parallels between Ravelry and GitHub um, and you can sort of fork it, but uh, we don't necessarily, cause it's not really open source, share the source back. So that's, that's sort of the, um, the restriction there, I guess, is you can see my version and I can tell you about the modifications that I made, but you can't actually then, take that and, and get the source code to make your own. Whereas if we had a system built on, on something like KnitML from the get-go, we, we could bake that in. Right. Fascinating. Yeah, because you mentioned that KnitML was useful for exchange and transformation. Yes, absolutely. There's differences from even country to country in the way people write knitting patterns. There's no sort of worldwide authority that has dictated the way patterns are written. So I tend to like using charts, I guess, maybe because of just that's how I, I prefer a sort of, you know, really graphical way of looking at what my knitting stitches are going to do. Other people like everything written out in words. Um, we also have the problem that when you buy a pattern, it's got lots of strings of numbers in it, each of which corresponds to a separate size, which can get confusing. You know, often you have to tell newbies, get a highlighter and go through and highlight the one, you know, the fifth number is always the one you're going to be using. And it's really easy to mess that up. So with MinML, I could say, okay, just generate size number five and use mine with charts. And I want the language to be English. And it would say paper. It would it would do it in exactly the way that I find easiest. And it could even have advantages for the designers because they could design it in the way that makes sense. Prefer, perhaps the designer prefers writing out of words, but knowing that they'll have customers who be able to get it in exactly the format they want could be revolutionary. Yeah, that's some accessibility there. Yeah, it makes internationalization a lot easier. You could translate into other languages very easily, even Braille. We haven't talked about crochet, but crochet, when I, I, I actually worked in a knitting shop for a while and built up their online website and presence. And one of the problems we had is people come in with a crochet pattern and you have to say, okay, did you get this from America or for here? Because American crochet and, and British Australian crochet use the exact same words to mean different things. Dun, dun, dun. That is <laughs> so confusing to new people. It's like, oh, okay, no, that not that double crochet, the other double crochet. The great thing about standards is there are so many of them to choose from. Well, KnitML <laughs> yeah. was a great idea, and obviously I'm a proponent, but it, it didn't take off and take the knitting world by fire, did it? So, I'm yeah, I, I, I'm going to, I think, I feel like I'm going to have a tilt at that particular windmill, but I don't necessarily expect to be successful successful well i certainly hope that you are i mean it really sounds like a, a way of making knitting friendlier a way of disseminating the information more broadly and more in a more friendly way it allows people to build on top of it and and find new ways of 
interacting with the data. So um, I certainly hope that you succeed with it. Yeah, I've just got to learn how to port Java. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was an interesting point about like with free sewing and if you did knit ML and so people could receive the data in whatever format was clear to them. There's a user focus as opposed to a creator focus on that. Yeah, I think so. There is, there is, a, there are advantages to creators. Like I said, I mean, one of the big ones as a designer would be the ability to have multiple sizes generated. You know, that's always one of the things. As soon as you get into making clothes, um, people are always going to say, "Oh, you, you're just catering for my size." So, like the free sewing community, there's no limit to the sizing and the custom sizing that you can have. So that would potentially open them up to a bigger market. As you say, being able to internationalize would allow them to potentially sell patterns. Uh, to more people in more formats. Um, and the error checking is huge because so many patterns have errors and just disseminating the errata. Like every time I run into a problem with a pattern and get frustrated, I go and Google it, of course, and inevitably find buried on a publisher's website that there was a mistake in that line of the pattern. It's like, oh, ugh. you know, there's no good way for people to know that. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, certainly that's just like with, uh, you know, book errata where you where the line of code in the example is wrong. <laughs> you, you cause a lot of problems for people with that. So being able to get around that is great. Right. So you could unit test the patterns. Yeah, effectively. Um, you could very much do automated error checking, which would be so good. But yeah, I mean, I see your point, Jess, like selling IP in this way has always been sort of a, I don't know that anyone's got a good solution for that. Free sewing is obviously free. I think he is intending to add paid patterns. I'm not sure. But, you know, knitting patterns, Ravelry has really come in and sort of disrupted that in a great, a great way because you can now see a pattern, say, I want to make that and PayPal, you know, the, the, the person a couple bucks and actually have the PDF right away. But still, it's a PDF. It's, you know, got limitations in the format. We forgot to do something at the beginning of the show. Oh, you forgot to ask me about my superpower. That's right. Yes. Oh, I was kind of glad because it's a hard question. Well, you can't say knitting because we already know about that. Um, it was funny. I was talking to a friend I stayed with the other night in Melbourne, and I, I said, well, what would you say your superpower is? And without a missing image, she went, oh, parallel parking. superpower that's very practical um no that is not mine mine is an interesting one i would probably say that mine and i don't know that it's a superpower for everyone but in in our community i think being a, a social extrovert has been like a superpower within the tech community just because it has brought so many benefits to me and i didn't used to be like this when i grew up i was very shy I wouldn't go up and talk to people at conferences and events. And I think I developed it really when I moved overseas. Uh, when I, I went to London um, and got a job in the first dot-com boom and then moving to Australia, like you move to a strange place, you don't have any friends, you can either stay at home and sit on your computer or you can actually, you know, go out and, and meet people and, and try and... Um, get over that hurdle of not wanting to put yourself out there. So I get introduced a lot as like someone who knows everybody here. I don't know that that's anything I've tried to do. It's just sort of a natural consequence. A consequence of needing to develop that. Absolutely. It was like being pushed off a cliff. You know, I moved to Australia with knowing my husband, um, who's Australian, and, and his family. And uh, I didn't know anyone in Sydney. And the first friends that I made here outside of his were people that I found in a local crafting group on the internet. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to meet people. It's interesting. I, I find myself on the same journey as you, where long ago in my youth, I was incredibly shy. And over the years, especially as I started going to conferences, I just had to start building up those extroversion muscles so that I can now sustain a five-day burst of socializing. Ooh, that's a long conference. Yeah, it was. And that was RailsConf plus Heart Effects like week before last, uh, which is the longest I've ever gone. And it certainly took a lot of effort, but uh, I was actually surprised that I made it. <laughs> yeah, Linux conference here is a five-dayer. And, and by the end of that week, I'm usually just shattered. But yeah, yeah, that's a good one. For me, it was, it was really interesting because for the longest time, I defined myself as a shy person. Ooh. So... Uh, like even until like a couple of years ago, 
people would say to me, what do you mean you're shy? You're so, you know, everybody, every time we go to a conference, you've got friends that are already there and blah, blah, blah. And I would say, no, no, no. I'm like, what are you talking about? And then eventually it, it sunk in. I was like, oh, wait, they're right. I actually am. I have to change my self-definition now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Sometimes you're the last to know who you are. <laughs> yeah. And there's a funny parallel, I think, with tech here, because I think the stereotype of a knitter is someone, you know, at home with her cats um, and, and you know, of a coder of someone in the basement with just their computer. And the reality is if you get at, you know, two knitters within 20 feet of each other, they will naturally gravitate towards each other and start talking and pull out the knitting. And it's just this hugely social activity. And we don't have that as much in tech. Like we, we have meetups and we have conferences and we have hackathons. Like we've got, we've got a little bit of it, but I think it's, um, it's not quite as pervasive as I get in the craft community. I guess it's just, just the, the reality of what you're doing. Yeah. It's a little bit easier to, to actually have a conversation while you're knitting versus like you can't think about code while you're conversing. Depends what you're knitting. I've got, I've got different levels of patterns. You know, I've got pub knitting patterns, which are very simple. And I can, you know, I've got a sock that I've been working on that I can take to a tech conference and sit in the audience and, and work on. And then I've got, you know, the really complicated gnarly stuff that like needs to be at home with no distractions around me. Um, and mm. like multiple apps, and spreadsheets and, and highlighters <laughs> too. Yeah. Fascinating. It's interesting that you acquired your superpower through necessity. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like a, what was the film Deadpool or something, you know, it's like, you know, we're triggering a mutation in you through, through sort of, you know, hardship um, and putting you through some kind of trial by fire and, and you then develop your superpower. And mine turned out to be an inability to feel afraid to go up and talk to strangers, I guess. Because I think, and I, this is silly, but I actually think part of it is also because, well, Americans, we don't have the best reputation overseas sometimes. And so it's like, well, guess what? I'm going to change that. I'm going to be friendly. The worst I can do is confirm your stereotypes already. So, you know, I'm oh, just yeah. going to go up and know that you're going to, yeah, you're going to love me. I'm going to be awesome. Well, and also if, if I come across as crass or rude or something, well, I'm American. That's expected. Exactly. Oh, I'm talking on the bus. That's just a thing that we do, I guess, you know? We eat hamburgers with our hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us are, we're capable of becoming a lot more than we think we are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like, I mean, I was, I was shy as a small child, like until I got to college. And it's not that I was perfectly capable of going up to talk to someone. I wasn't, but I was perfectly capable of becoming someone who could. Yeah, you had that that sort of potential inside you all along. Yeah, I think we all have that potential to be a, a lot of different things. It was hard. I remember, you know, when I moved to London, and I'd, I'd, done, a, I'd done a semester abroad, and that was sort of my gateway drug, and I, I just loved it so much that, like, when I when I graduated college, it was, like, the only thing that I knew for sure that I wanted to do was go back to London and, and, and get a job. And I got there and I remember, you know, calling my mom in tears after a week being like, no, I, I can't do it. I, I need to come home to Indiana. You know, this is just on my own trying to set up a bank account, trying to, you know, I'd given uh, as a deposit on my apartment, the last of my like, this is your emergency, get a plane ticket home money. It's like, okay, I'm committed now. I've got to make this work. And it's really hard. And I think it just developed a lot of confidence and, and sort of self reliance that I didn't necessarily have growing up before then. You don't know you can do it until you do it. Yeah. 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 Sometimes I think I can't do something like ride my bike up a certain hill or whatever. And I'm like, no, Jess, you are doing it. doesn't matter whether you can, you are doing it. Look at you. You are riding up this hill right now. We had a fantastic talk at um, Girl Geek Sydney last year about the growth mindset. That's what that reminds me of, you know, fixed mindsets versus growth mindset. And it's something that I, yeah, I think it was that switch. Um, and I don't know that I'm great at it. There's still plenty of areas where I, I, I lapse into the fixed mindset. But once I had that vocabulary to talk about it, it was like at Linux conference last year, they, they have an open hardware mini con. And it's part of that. We're like, great, we'll teach you to, to solder or say, say here in Australia, solder. Um, oh. anyway, but <laughs> I know, but I was like, I've never done that. That seems like a thing that I'm, kind of afraid to do because I might suck and be the worst person in the room. 
but growth mindset, I'm going to do that. You know, I'm going to just suck it up and do it. And guess what? That wasn't bad. You know, I've, I've done it like the last two years now and, and gotten other women to come and do that as well. And trying to like take some of the lessons that I do, you know, I'm fearless in other aspects of my life, but there's still areas where I need, I need to work on it and, and consciously tell myself, yep, you can do this. You, and even if you fail, having a go is, is important. Yeah, totally. Sometimes when you feel that fear, you can flag it as an opportunity to do the thing anyway, just to eliminate the fear. Absolutely. What's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah. You, you burn yourself, I guess. There's hospitals. <laughs> yeah. In, don't breathe the smoke from the solder was scary. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the stuff. Yeah. Oh, and you even have public health care there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What? I'm fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. John, did you say something about uh, we can do more than we think we can through hard work? Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I think that's the, the key step between what you were saying about, like, wh- where someone is now and where they're, you know, where they don't yet know they can go. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I agree with you. Okay. Tell me more about that. You think you, they, we can just get there or maybe it just you didn't realize it was going to be easier than you thought? Or No, no, no. I think that you get there maybe by making yourself go there, by changing the situation such that it's not hard work, it's necessary work. You like have to do the new thing or it becomes easier to do the new thing. Like, um, like with Ravelry and the moderation, everybody wants good moderators, but if it's a lot of work, if it's just hard, if, if, if moderation of communities is just a lot of hard work, Hello, these are volunteers. Why would they do that? But you can change the situation such that it's not such hard work. You find the fun and poof, the job's a game. I'm not even going to say it's smart work. It's like cleverly manipulating ourselves by changing the situation, which as software developers, we have an unusual power and ability to do. Certainly true. Yeah, I mean, reframing is an incredibly powerful technique. But how do you do that when... When you're, you know, you're, you're learning something on your own because you want to learn it. You, you know, it's, it's different if it's something you have to do for your job or because you're in a foreign country. But how do you, how do you do something when the very, very easy alternative is just not do it? Giving yourself a time limit helps. Like if you time box it and you're like, I'm going to do this for half an hour. And if at the end of half an hour, I haven't done the thing, then I'm never going to do it. Because if you can always just do it later, why would you do it now? Uh, you can put yourself in a social situation where it's awkward to not have done the thing. Right, so some accountability. Yeah, and it doesn't need to be like you'll be punished, but just like you'll feel awkward. Yeah, that's certainly a motivator. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of exploring this myself lately. Of uh, As humans, we, we think with our environment a lot, um, and, and we influence ourselves. We influence our future selves by changing our environment. Certainly. And you, you can also break it down into tiny, tiny pieces so that you can work more easily with them. Yes. For like, like if you're building a new behavior, you can start with like brushing your teeth. You can just like the thing you do is you brush one tooth. <laughs> you knit one stitch. Yeah. And if you can do that every day, all of a sudden, you know, a few weeks later, you've got a, a, a strong habit that you can keep expanding on. And that changes your environment into like, oh, well, in, in evenings at a certain time, I do X. Yeah, I was thinking of, I was a runner for a while as well. I ran a marathon and, and part of my like training, because it's very, it's very easy when the alarm goes off early in the morning and it's cold out and you don't want to go run to stay in bed. And so you have to make your environment such that, you know, you've got all your stuff ready to go sitting right there. You know, you, you've, you've had the coffee machine on the timer so that there's some coffee ready to go. Like you can do stuff to just remove the friction. And then you do things like you share your own run keeper or, or Strava or something where people are watching, you're cheering you on. You don't want to let them down. You know, there's all this stuff and all these tools we have now, I guess, to make it easier for you to learn new things and accomplish hard goals like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so you did everything you could in the easy part, like in the evening before to make the hardest part, the minimum work that, that, that actually getting out of bed and doing it. Evening Chris has, you know, a lot of foresight. Morning Chris has a lot of (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh yeah. Last night I heard Paul Nicklin speak. He's a wildlife photographer in the Arctic. And he said he always keeps his tent cold 
because that way he doesn't want to stay in his tent. He might as well be outside working. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I mean, it, it sort of ties into another, well, kind of another point from the talk I'm doing this afternoon, which is about investing in your tooling. Like a lot of times we use free or cheap materials, tools, IDEs, whatever, that make it harder, that put more friction in. Um, and so, you know what, investing in things that make the boring bit pleasurable makes it easier for you to get to the hard stuff. And something I think with knitting, you know, fighting with an eyelash yarn, guess what? You know, if I get you some nice wool and, and wooden needles, it might be a bit more enjoyable to get you over the hump of the huge learning curve that you're facing. Yeah, a little bit of beauty goes a long way. Oh, absolutely. Using tools that are pleasurable to use oh, makes me happy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big motivator for me. I spend a lot of time picking the right font for my ID. And, I, and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> Which one do you use? I use Rubybine. Okay, I'll have to look it up. That's that's a variant of IntelliJ. Do we want to dive into the um, into your tweet a little bit about the sort of gender differences and what makes a maker and what doesn't make a maker and crafting and all I that? I wondered or? if you were going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that came about. This was last November, and I was actually I think it was sewing. I was having a sewing day, and I was you know, taking a, a break and, and, and serving the internet as you do. And was reading about, at the time, the controversy about uh, Naomi Wu, who is uh, a woman in, in China, in, um, uh, in Shenzhen, uh, yeah, Shenzhen Magazine. And she's done some really amazing uh, projects. But there was this weird thing where there was a small faction who thought that she was fake, as in, she, of course, she didn't build that stuff herself. You know, there's a whole cadre of people, men, who, and she, they're just teaching her the lines and she's, you know, performing it. Despite the fact that she's actually welding and doing stuff, you know, on video, they, there was this weird thing where people thought that she was a fake, you know, it's a fake geek girl thing. And I was reading about this because it became quite a big controversy when Dale Doherty, the founder of Make Magazine, actually retweeted some of this and, and commented about it online. And I was reading the comments on a blog post, which I know you should never read the comments. That was my first mistake. But someone in there was defending, um, well, of course you'd think that because I mean, 80% of the people in the maker community are male. Like women have every opportunity to get involved in the community and they're just not. And he, I think he invoked James Damore or something that obviously this is just in an age gener gender difference that women aren't interested in in the maker movement. And I was like, and I'm sitting there at my sewing machine going, this is such crap, you know? And so I, I dashed off a tweet, which I'll pull it up. It said, read a comment this morning stating that maker culture is 80% male and had to laugh. Only if you discount the millions of women sewing, knitting, weaving, and more. But oh, right, they're just crafters. That artificial distinction enrages me. Angry face emoji. And it was not something that I thought was, it was just a dashed off thing, uh, you know, hot take on the internet. And it just started to blow up, you know, by that evening, I had like 10,000 likes and, and just climbing and uh, people were trying to get Adam Savage to retweet it. And a few of my friends who'd responded early on then got inundated with replies as well. Like none of us had ever dealt with anything like the, you know, Sauron's eye of the internet turned upon us. It was kind of interesting and fun and then got a little bit scary uh, just because it's like, whoa, so many eyeballs all suddenly looking at you. But it, it was fine in the end. I think there were only a few people who sort of took issue and, and tried to make an argument with me. But most of the discussion was a lot of people going, yes, this language matters. Like, why why do we make this distinction? Why Why don't we say craft instead of make? Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> well, I mean, I I could like repeat some things that I've learned from reading feminist literature, but I don't actually understand it. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. Like I, I wasn't putting my hands up to be the like spokesperson of this, um, you know, but it, I'd actually in Singapore last year, I'd, I'd managed to be in Singapore during the Singapore Maker Fair. And I didn't have a lot of time between work commitments. I, I went to a panel um, of educators, which was sort of an interesting thing. And Dale Doherty was there. And so there was a bunch of local people talking about setting up maker spaces and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then there was a Q and A and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him about this, you know? And I said, I'm just curious why we needed a new word because 
I come from a long line of crafters and I'm a crafter and you didn't use the word craft. You use making, you know, why, why is that? And he, he was like, Oh, I see what you mean, but you know, Oh, knitters and sewing, you guys are totally part of the maker community. You know, we have knitters and sewers at, at all the maker events. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get that. But I'm not asking for admittance to your club. I'm trying to pin down why you didn't want to be in mine. Because to me, the distinction feels gendered. To me, it feels like, well, crafting is what women do, but making is what high-tech dudes do with 3D printers and buying stuff, you know? And I'm not the first person. There's there's plenty of other people who've had these critiques as well. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it comes down to, like, crafts are associated with children also. Like, it's the thing you do in school or at recess or at, at parties okay. where you're gluing macaroni to things. And that sort of also brings in the whole... Like, oh, well, if if the women are associated with it, then it's also a childlike thing. And, and it's another way of reducing credibility. What's interesting in the knitting, because we talk about knitting history, knitting was traditionally done by men. It was a very skilled activity. So, you know, the people uh, knitting your fine garments back in the day would have all been master artisan men, you know. And then when the Industrial Revolution happened, when knitting became something that you could buy and was no longer high status guess what? Men stopped doing it and it became a woman thing. It's like that thing where, you know, certain professions, once, uh, once they stop, once more women get into them, guess what? The men stop doing them and it becomes less valuable and, and making less money. So it's just a funny thing to me that what started out as a very masculine thing, well, now that it's a slow status, we're going to call it craft and shunt it off to the side and we'll go on and, and do something much more important. I wonder if, if they called themselves crafters, then there would have been an expectation that they know how to knit. And why, what do you mean you don't sew? And and so they had to make a new word to explain their lack of background knowledge. Well, but make is so vague. Like I've read articles, like they literally include pickling vegetables and, you know, making dim, like if make is such a wide umbrella, then, then literally I, all of us do something in the maker movement every single day. And it just becomes to me too vague to have any real utility. Certainly. And it's also a way to attach like, cool, interesting cachet to whatever it is you're interested in, what your, what your hobbies are. Like, as you said, I'm pickling things. Oh, now I'm a pickle maker. It, it's a way to sort of add a little extra uh, woofy to what you're doing. Yeah, it becomes part of your identity. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a transition from activity to identity. Yeah. In the uh, in the replies to the massive tweet, one of, one of the ones that I saw that I really liked was someone went talked about the revolution the revelation they had when someone pointed out to them that life hacks are just what we used to call household hints. But, <laughs> right. But dudes, dudes don't subscribe to Household Hints magazine; they subscribe to Life Hacker, right? Like, ah. Yeah, got to make it's like you've got to make all the men's products like black or brown and and. <laughs> have sharp corners on them in order for them to be purchased safely. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, uh, Woofy, for those people that, that, that don't know, is is a term coined by Cory Doctorow. I forget which book it was in. I think it was down and down in the Magic Kingdom where it was sort of a generic term for social currency and approbation. So things really? that you do simply for that sort of feedback of, oh, now everyone looks up to me for X. is a way of that? W-H-U-F-F-I-E. I think I'd heard that one. Yeah. So the equivalent of prayer hands, hashtag emoji. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of um, words matter, what do y'all think about the latest controversy over whether the term craftsman is gendered? Oh, I, I was reading that the other night and I liked the comments I saw. I think it was Sarah Mai. I think uh, it was someone in that discussion who said, it's not that I feel excluded when I read the word craftsman, but I certainly don't feel included either. Was that the one from, um, oh, what was it? Hillel or something. Um, that was like, it explicitly includes men. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It, they're all included, but I have to like choose to feel like I'm included. Right. It's written for men, but I might like it too. Yeah. And, and one of the other points that she, she brought up with that is not so much that, well, I mean, that's certainly the one of the subtexts of the message, but there's also the, well, clearly the person who wrote it also wasn't thinking about this. So what other like gender dynamic things is he not thinking about in the way he's constructing his instruction and his ideas and all of that? 
Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so Romeo has this thread about symbolic violence and hexes and cultural capital and symbolic violence is that thing where, uh, based on, I don't know, it could, some of it might be innate, but the way we're raised, it doesn't matter over our lives. We, we naturally come to see certain signs and signals as symbols associated with power. So being white and male wealth, signs of wealth, uh, being tall and like, I don't know, walking a certain way. There's various things that are just associated with, we naturally give power to these people that just like, it feels like they should have it kind of thing. And you can't see this if you have it because you don't do it to yourself. Other people just give it to you by default. And, and so, so uncle Bob and all the, all the other people on the agile manifesto were white males. And of course, craftsmen is gender neutral to them because they don't see that men have more power than women because they're it's not gender neutral, isn't it? Right. Like defaulting to he for the singular pronoun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the, yeah. They, they just don't see any problem with it because it's not a problem for them. And they didn't like do anything to make it a problem for other people. It's similar with them. Um, Hexus is interesting because I have a ton of this. I wonder if y'all do too. What, what is it that you're talking about? What was it? I can't quite. Hexus? Hexus. H-E-X-I-S. And this is, okay. this is like being raised with the assumption that you belong everywhere you are that you just belong ah. everywhere. And it's different from confidence because confidence means, hmm, I think I belong here. I, I believe I belong here and I am going to choose to feel that I belong here. Hexus doesn't even ask the question. doesn't even recognize that there is a question of what, what do you mean? I, why would I not belong? Obviously. And when you have that more than confidence uh, kind of attitude, other people just assume you belong too because you act like you belong and you know, people don't put a lot of thought into it. They just go with their gut and their gut is influenced by your bearing and body language and stuff. Right. The whole thing feeds back. That's a really useful concept. Yeah, absolutely. And oh gosh, I watched that um, TED talk a few years back about like power posing and stuff. But, you know, and I think about it sometimes in situations where I don't feel like I necessarily belong is like, okay, is there, is there some body language I can do to try and make, make myself look like I belong? And maybe that will make, I feel like, you know, that we, we, we start to dress in certain ways or, or act in certain ways that support this because then that makes us feel like we're part of it as well. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. yeah and it, it feeds on itself because if you dress like you belong, then other people assume you belong. And if they're acting like you belong, then you feel like you belong. Absolutely. We, we had a speaker out for a YOW event, uh, Suze Hinton, um, who's Australian and I love yeah. to live in the U.S. now, but she was speaking and I was helping her with her microphone on, and she was wearing this nice dress. And she sort of said like, Oh, I'm, yeah, thanks for helping. I'm not super comfortable wearing dresses. And I said, Oh, why would you, why would you present in something that, you know, you're obviously not super comfortable in? And she said, Well, I'm kind of trying to normalize the idea that it's okay for there to be people in dresses at tech conferences. And I went, Oh my God, that, is brilliant. Um, yeah, that yeah. is just yeah. such a small thing. So she was like taking this little extra uncomfortableness on to try and make that less weird and to try and give that to more people, which I thought was so great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I did that for a while too, but now I've gotten lazy because if I wear jeans and a men's shirt, the microphone actually works. <laughs> yes, pockets are pockets are the where this all falls apart. Really, it really is. I know a woman who speaks at, I don't know, 20, 30 conferences a year, um, Heidi Waterhouse. She makes all her own dresses so she can put microphone pockets in. Yes. Like that's her solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the modern. Yeah. Modern, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found the craftsman discussion just a little disappointing. But look, I, I work in the industry, uh, in this conference industry. And so I meet all these great men who are really generous with their time and friendly to me and everything. And then you're right. They'll, I'll see them on stage. And the one, Oh, the one, and it's, it's, you know, we're talking microaggressions really, but one that gets me is where every inanimate object is always a, this guy and he, and it's like, even you're talking about bits of code, this guy here, this is what he does. It's like, dude, your entire mindset. And it's like, maybe, maybe if that is the way you think, 
it it doesn't strike you that craftsman is is not a, a you know general term for everyone because everyone is a he by default and then some of us just are like um other you know so then we're like we're like that bit of code what's your problem i've anthropomorphized you into a man doesn't that feel good <laughs> exactly exactly yeah i think actually my favorite tweet in in sarah's whole series there was talking about pairing specifically and and sort of uneven power dynamics between pairs and how the person who's on the upward side of the pair it's their responsibility to address the power dynamic and do things to neutralize it because expecting the person on the downside she phrased it as you're expecting them to walk uphill and find out how to distribute power that they don't have yeah and yet it's really hard for the person on the upside to do that because they don't know it's there the world looks flat from the top of the hill. Yeah, you're soaking in oh. it. Yeah, so it takes consciousness. Because I can't see that dynamic, I need to learn from other people that it's there. I have to like, and, and this has been a conscious effort of mine over the last few years, empathize with people who don't feel comfortable in a spot. Because I'm fine. <laughs> One that's caught me out as an American living overseas is we use guys to be gender neutral for a group. You know, we just do. I, I would refer to a group of my girlfriends. Hey, guys, let's do this. And it's only been getting out of American culture where I've realized that, oh, actually, people have told me this makes them uncomfortable and I should try and find alternatives. And, you know, I could double down and get defensive about that and insist on the fact that, no, guys is totally gender neutral. Or I could just start saying folks, and that's fine. Yeah, because if you want to communicate... It's not about what you think you're saying. It's about what your audience is hearing. And it's your job to listen to that. Yeah, that I mean, that's the only way for you to find out. You have to listen. Which is hard because you're also trying to talk. <laughs> Maybe listen at other times and, and learn things and then start paying attention to them. The guys thing, my theory is it's only a problem when it's mostly true. I call my daughter's guys, but, but in an audience that is uh, 70 to 90% male, it's a reminder that you stand out. Hmm, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, so many of these problems will just go away when programming is 30 to 50 or more percent female or non-binary. It, it all spirals. Yeah, there's, there's a term I learned a few years back that I find myself keep, when all this stuff comes up, of contempt culture, that it's not so much that it's it's, it's a gender thing, it's that for a long time in tech, the way that we signaled we were part of the group that belonged was to sort of make the right in jokes, put down the latest JavaScript framework, you know, to, to sneer at the newbies. So that actually became part of our culture and how we identified as part of the in-group. And we have Novelty to yarn. That. Yeah, exactly. We have content. We had contempt culture too. Yeah. It's something that I try and call out now when I see it. Um, I saw someone on Twitter recently say, you know, oh, what what would possibly be anyone's justification for using PHP for a new project in these days? And you know, the thread was full of people yuck yucking it up. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Why why make that joke? Why you're a respected member of the community? There are plenty of people for whom this is their gateway, and you're just crapping on it and making them feel bad and not actually educating them about what the pitfalls are or what they might want to, you know, do differently. And and plus, I can think of plenty of reasons why someone might want to use that that tool. Just because you don't think it's a good tool doesn't mean they're, it's never appropriate, you know? And I just, I get so angry and tired about this. And, and I think it's one that we need to try and root out and call out when we see it, because it is, it's not welcoming at all. Right. Every time you spend your breath signaling how much a part of the group you are, you're not advancing the cause of the group. In fact, you're undermining the advancement of the group as a whole in order to advance your own position within the group. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not improving the community when you do things like that. That's correct. Some of that may be rooted in the sort of deep nerd culture that a lot of us grew up in where we were the outcasts and so had to sort of form our own culture apart from the mainstream and I think a lot of people have sort of latched onto that and tried to make being a part of that group the most important thing and try to keep other people out of it. Like the whole fake geek girl thing. Like, uh, it, it's a yet another one of those, like, well, I finally have a group where I've got some social currency. So now I need to make sure that I'm higher on the status poll than anyone else and that we can't let anyone new in. 
Yeah. And then we get back to the part about, is it something you do or is it who you are? And if yeah. so, if so, nobody else better do it unless they do it the way you approve of. Yep. I, it, it's anno- I get that it's annoying. Like I get annoyed when I, and there are plenty of knitters for whom knitter is like their identity, you know? And I don't think that that is who I am. I've become everyone's knitting friend on the internet that, you know, whenever there's a new thing, I get the tweets, people will tag me in them and stuff. Yes, yes. That's the one adjective, you know, about me. So go ahead. But, you know, identifies a lot more than that. And I have to consciously sometimes remind myself that like, it's okay for other people to have fun liking things that you don't like and just be okay with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The, the best phrasing of that rule is uh, don't yuck other people's yum. Oh yeah. I love that. So knitting is a yum. And I love the stories about Ravelry and how we, we can be welcoming and advance. And, And in the end, I mean, if it's a good group, if you advance the status of the group as a whole, People within the group will respect you for that. And yet, I agree. Yeah, you know, that brings us back to the ingressive versus congressive. If you're doing things for your own power versus for the power advancement of the group. That's true. And it turns out people like congressive people. <laughs> Does anybody have any reflections? I really uh, like your phrase and I wrote it. I wrote it down thinking with your environment. And I'm going to do some more reflection and thinking about that because I think it's something I've been working on with trying to get better with some of my sewing and some of the things, um, even with coding, some of the new things I'm trying to learn. How how can I use my environment to actually make that better, make that easier, make it so it's not something I'm fighting to do, but something I have to do, as you say. Yeah, I'm going to think about how I can use that going forward. Yeah, I find that a really interesting phrasing and a way of thinking about it as well. I think my reflection is going to be about onboarding community members and the sort of importance of making that ramp as shallow as possible so that there's that easy on-ramp to what the expectations of the community are. And then also the enforcement and the moderation within them make sure that the environment is welcoming and that the interactions healthy and you resi- you can you can actively work against the sort of old guard, new guard culture stuff that is bound to come up just because humans are involved. Yeah, true. And we do want to feel like we're part of something. We like our little tribe. We do. And that's important. And it's like inherent to us. I just, I, I want to choose a tribe based on how inclusive it is. Yeah. You mentioned you've got a QR code tattoo. I've got a friend with a knitting tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yes. Yeah, so I'm grateful to be a part of greater than code because we do try to bring people from the edges closer to the center. Hmm. And Chris, thank you for your work at um, expanding what it means to be a maker and a crafter and pointing out how much crossover there is with something beautifully physical like knitting and the ways that we think about programming. The way we devalue traditional skills, thinking they couldn't possibly be as technical as what we do, when the reality is knitting and sewing and woodworking involve incredible math and incredible you know, complicated stuff that people have been refining and working out for hundreds of years. So we shouldn't assume that it's less cool because it doesn't involve, you know, a plug or, or a 3D printing or a laser. It's literal craftspersonship. <laughs> See, that's why, yes, that's why he doesn't want to use that word. <laughs> it is hard to say. but it's <laughs> Yeah, we need a new word. That's, maybe we should come up with a new word. Right. Some people said artisan. This is fine. I actually don't think programming is a craft at all. Knitting is a craft because when you knit something, it's done. Oh, see, that's interesting. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I can patch and darn my knitting. Um, I can knit my socks with an afterthought heel so that I can then pick up later and, and put in an afterthought heel or an afterthought pocket. I can uh, undo the sleeves and graft on uh, to make my sleeves longer if, if I decided I didn't like the length. I could knit something uh, in a, mo- there's ways of knitting things in a modular fashion so that they can grow and I can uh, add on to them over time. Do you ever add on to other people's knitting? Oh yeah, absolutely. My There's plenty of group projects people do where, that's an interesting one, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think group programming analogy, but you know, you're all working on different bits. Um, and so you can hand it from one to another and each work on a part, but it's, it's always fun because not everybody does things differently. So having, having to work out how my gauge is different to your gauge and how do we make that as seamless as possible? Yeah. There's, there's plenty of projects like that. 
but can you scale agile? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Knitting doesn't scale. Hand knitting doesn't scale very well. You still only got two hands. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. I know you need to run off because you have a lock note tonight. And I hope you get yes, some. Yes, I mean, I want to get over to see the keynote. Um, I think it's uh, it's on the future of art. So I think it's going to have lots of useful um, things that I'm going to try and reference in my talk. So I want to be sure and hear it. Excellent. Well, have a lot of fun. And thank you so much. 